Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Please review and subscribe to the Groundless Ground podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Radio.com, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and of course, find out more at GroundlessGround.com. I'm ready to go. How about you? Happy fall, everyone. My favorite time of year. As the light recedes and the air cools, the mind turns increasingly introspective. In that spirit, this episode is a deep dive into the extraordinary Tibetan Buddhist wisdom teachings on dream yoga, sleep yoga, and the bardos with Andrew Holacek, a longtime Tibetan Buddhist practitioner an expert in offering these teachings via contemporary language and authentic practices. Andrew's methodology goes way beyond lucid dreaming. He believes that shamatha and vipassana meditation are foundational to all the advanced practices he teaches, and his purpose for sharing this knowledge is facilitating awakening from suffering rather than feeding a student's unconscious or conscious need for power or non-ordinary experience. We talk openly about these profound yogas and their ultimate aim, revealing the ever-present continuity of pure awareness underlying waking, dreaming, sleeping, and even death. Andrew Holacek, it is a tremendous honor to have you on the Groundless Ground podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to spend this time with me. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's a delight. I look forward to it. I really want to start by having you talk about, you called it a struggle with deep inner insight. You know, I've been fairly well established in the so-called conventional world with a reasonable amount of, of success. But I think like many who start to either live long enough or question the nature of appearances. Um, Very early on started to ask myself, you know, is this really it? Can there be something else? And to me, the whole thing began with questions, directing the lens of my mind towards a a closer examination of how things actually appear and and whether that's in fact all there is. Hence began both a scientific and, and a spiritual quest because at first I thought this quest that I was after was held within the context of hard sciences. And so I studied physics for a while thinking that that would be the solution, um, not realizing all the while that yes, indeed, I was looking for this thing called reality. And I thought at that point, the hard sciences described it. Fundamentally, what happened was a, a sense of disgruntlement, understanding of the limitations of both the sciences as I've come to understand them and also conventional ways of life. I'm often kind of taken by the adage that the, there's no tyranny as great as the tyranny of success. And so I realized that, that the tyranny of my conventional success was keeping me away from these deeper truths. And so that then began this kind of, as you put it, a struggle of reconciliation. How do I reconcile my worldly interests and pursuits with this deeper, authentic, truer, what came to be spiritual path. I started then just questioning, contesting, challenging um, the status of conventional reality, realizing that in fact, conventional success can be the most deadly of all traps because it just keeps you happy and going long enough to fall into these really deadly comfort plans. And, and so I started to really challenge the container of this comfort plan, realizing that, yeah, you know, my life is pretty good, but there's something fundamentally missing. I, I kept thinking, of course, that there was something fundamentally missing outside. And that's why I began just acquiring 
like most other people do. But then, of course, came this really profound realization that there's fundamentally nothing missing in reality. What's really missing is me. First of all, my attention is missing. I've gone AWOL on reality when I'm lost in distraction. And then also a deeper lack of recognition that what I was truly fundamentally looking for is not at all buried in the outside world. It's actually hidden deep within. And that generated this deep dive into the spiritual path where when I finally understood the map with some relative rigor, I decided, well, let's take this map and actualize it into territory. And so it began a fairly rigorous deep dive into the wisdom traditions, Buddhism in particular, including you know, three-year retreat extensive practice since then, and all the things that have gotten me to the station in life that I'm at right now. I wonder how young you were when you first felt that sense of there's something more than what is appearing to me. I feel blessed that this happened relatively early on. I was in my teens and was reading about, at that point, was what we now call the, the new age psychic phenomena. And I mean, it, you know, back then, some 40 plus years, there was very little in print yet on either Hinduism or Buddhism. I still felt the pull from the conventional world because obviously I was still you know, deeply embedded within it. But then also started to realize that beneath this veneer, there's a great deal of disquietude, discontent that reveals itself, for instance, when you lie down to sleep at night or when the mind settles enough to really start to examine that a, a great deal of what we call happiness is basically this kind of gloss. So Rinpoche talked about it as active laziness. And so then began this increasingly more articulate quest to look underneath the hood and see, well, what's, what's really going on here? I mean, what's, what's going on beneath the picture? And that's why I was so deeply connected to the sciences, especially things like physics. I mean, on a certain level, that's what they do. They also kind of bottom out because they're still, with rare exception, really physicalist, reductionist, materialist. And that's just a, a very nearsighted, myopic way of looking at things. And so then I became you know, more interested in holistic thinking, integral thinking, systemic comprehensive thinking. My charter has been to find truth wherever I can get it, even though I consider myself a card-carrying Buddhist. I will find truth. And I think the Buddha himself said, wherever you find the truth, you will find my dharma. And so I find my dharma in neuroscience and philosophy and, and development of psychology. I, too, have always been interested in all the disciplines because ultimately they all lead to the same place, some better than others. And then you have this other very interesting part of your life, you decided to go to dental school. And I absolutely love this because you've turned this into a beautiful bodhisattvic endeavor. So I thought before we get into some of the deeper things, maybe you could tell people about Global Dental Relief. So yeah, I went into the whole dental thing because my first degree is in classical music. I'm a trained classical pianist. And then I realized, do I really want to do that? Am I good enough to be a concert artist? I transitioned from that into study of science and physics. And then I said, well, this is really cool, but what am I going to do with this? Do I really want to be a professor? Do I really want to work in a research institute? And I said, not quite. And so then I was, now what? Um, I need some kind of financial infrastructure here. And so my, my entire family's in the medical world. And I have to say, it, you know, it turned out to be a really quite a beautiful thing because not only does it give me some freedom in the practicalities of life, but it's given me this really beautiful opportunity to give to those who are less fortunate. And so over 20 years ago, I started traveling to Asia to study with some of my teachers in India, Nepal, and Tibet. And then I started doing work in, in some of the most extraordinary locations on the planet. And 
monasteries at 16,000 feet, you know, on the plateaus mm -hmm. of Tibet. And, and then, I, you know, I realized what I have here is something that could really be of, of some benefit. Ended up launching Global Dental Relief. And I've had the just tremendous good fortune to, to work with amazing individuals in virtually every continent on this planet spiritual practitioner, it's very easy to bypass the grittiness of relative reality. And so by kind of coming down into the trenches and doing gritty, hard clinical work in tough locations, it just keeps me honest and grounded and also creates a tremendous sense of respect and perspective, gratitude for what I have, for what I've been given, what others don't have. So it's been tremendously rewarding for me. I imagine global dental relief requires some kind of funding if people are interested in actually contributing to your efforts, how do they go about doing that? Everything we do is either from donation. Almost everybody at this point is a volunteer. You simply go to the website, Global Dental Relief, everything you need to know, including places where you can sign up to donate, where you can sign up to volunteer. The people that come are not all trained clinicians. Half of the folks that come into our so-called camps are just family members and others who work with just kind of running the entire show while, you know, the clinicians do the actual clinical work. For those who have done this sort of work, you realize you receive so much more than you actually give. One of the things that I noticed on your website was a proclamation that I wholeheartedly agree with. For you, meditation is the foundation to any other spiritual practice. There is a lot of controversy these days about meditation. And as I think you and I probably experienced in our own lives at different times, Westerners really like shortcuts. Yeah, no kidding. Why it is for you that meditation is such a profound basis? Yeah, good question. I think, first of all, we have to realize that this term meditation is, is an extraordinary kind of catch-all phrase. And to me, it's akin to the word sport. So when you talk about sport, you know, I mean, what are there? Hundreds of different sports. I think right off the bat, when we use the word meditation, the first thing that I say is, well, what kind of meditation are you talking about? Because as you know, there are literally hundreds of types of meditation. When people say meditation, they mean mindfulness. There's this mindfulness revolution going on, which is great, but wherever you find light, you will find shadows. And so there are definitely some shadow elements to the mindfulness revolution. As an infrastructure practice, the shamatha in Sanskrit or shine in Tibetan, it's critically important as a foundation because when we're trying to grow, we're trying to look into things more deeply, it helps to have a good observatory, um, laboratory, whatever metaphor you want to use, some level of attentional stability. From that platform of solid mindfulness, shamatha, then you can implement the, the more refined investigative tools of things like insight meditation, which loosely translates Vipassana. This is, in fact, the contribution of the Buddha. Very often people misattribute mindfulness practice to the historical Buddha, but the, the Buddha um, inherited this from the Brahmanical tradition. He did not invent it. Buddha's fundamental contribution was Vipassana, the practice of insight, and in particular, the union of shamatha and Vipassana, the union of mindfulness and awareness or, or insight. You can't really look at things deeply when the mind is distracted, pinging all over the place. And so with that in mind, certainly in my experience, this kind of attentional stability is extraordinarily important. It's like if you have a really churned up sandy container of, of water that's all foggy and full of granulations, you're not going to be able to see to the bottom. But if you let the mind stabilize, if you let it settle, the sediment settles. And then the more it settles, the more you can see. 
And so if we talk about meditation in that sense, and I think it's important as meditation gains a little bit more traction to become more refined in our usage of terms and our application of this terminology. Because, I mean, for instance, I'm writing a book tentatively titled, Okay, I'm Mindful, Now What? Because mindfulness will not wake you up. Mindfulness is like a sedative in a certain way. And that's why it's, it's great. I'm not dissing it. But it's a limited form of meditation. And Well, now what means vipassana. Now you take the stability and, and you work with it. And that's where liberation really takes place. You won't be liberated if you put a pacifier in your mouth or mind. You'll be liberated when you see the nature of why you're suffering to begin with. So it's not just about sedating the anxiety, it's about understanding and penetrating the true foundations, the nature of that anxiety. And so I'm hopeful that as people start to question the limitations of the mindfulness revolution, and this I think is the great part with these criticisms coming out, then it will grow. And then people will say, yes, we need this platform, but it's kind of the Hegelian sense of transcend but include. Well, this is the reason that I wrote my scholarly clinical textbook on Buddhist psychology. What was missing was the depth of understanding about the view. Exactly. So I thought that maybe you might be interested in talking a little bit about the view because the view is very important for dream yoga and it's yeah. also very important for any kind of tiptoeing near the bardo teachings. Right. The view is the thing that's missing from clinical mindfulness, from consumer mindfulness practices. It was ostensibly, this is a sport. We are going to give you certain skills and the skills are going to give you the wisdom. And that's not the way it works. Yeah, I mean, this is a big one, obviously. As you know, it's the first of the Eightfold Noble Path. The view is everything. For those listeners who may not know, the term has a specific definition in the Buddhist tradition. It, it's somewhat associated with philosophy outlook. For instance, when I did my three-year retreat, I was engaged in, I don't know, 50, 60 different meditations over this curriculum in my busy university of meditations. And with every single practice I did, I made it a charter for myself to say, okay, what does it mean to accomplish this practice? What really is the view here? What am I really trying to do? understanding the map, the doctrine, the teachings was the first part of that. To understand the teachings intellectually, to really contemplate the historical situation. Be because of the power of that view, many teachers say, and I completely agree with this, that if you're having problems with your meditation, I mean, even conventionally, if you're having problems losing weight, if you're having problems going to the gym, if you're having problems accomplishing anything, fundamentally, it's because your view isn't strong enough. You know, in our tradition, as you know, what made the great Milarepa, this amazing individual who attained enlightenment in, in one lifetime, undergoing extraordinary hardship, what allowed him to endure 12 years of incredibly difficult meditation was the strength of the view that was in, inculcated within him from his teacher, Marpa, the translator. This, again, is super important that if we're having problems meditating, if we're having problems getting enlightened, well, if you're having problems getting enlightened or meditating or going to retreat, these teachings assert it's because your view isn't strong enough. Cultivating the proper view, understanding wrong view, thinking how conventional success will somehow lead you to unconditional constant happiness, that's a wrong view. We look at the power of view by challenging our wrong views. We then cultivate doctrinal understanding of right view. Then we progress through these stages from, from hearing to contemplating. And finally, of course, to meditating. When the view 
literally becomes fully embodied. And then it becomes more than just kind of philosophical rhetoric, because as you know, these teachings are really fundamentally digested and metabolized. This is no longer just spiritual rhetoric. The way you see things literally changes. It's not just metaphor. We'd need to give a little context for the discussion we're about to have of dream yoga. You and I have been practitioners a long time. You also have had the benefit of being introduced to the path of meditation and the Buddhist teachings in a way which starts with the basics and then progresses you along to more and more, not just sophisticated practices, but ways of viewing your experience as something other than what you would, in a default way, think it is. One of these progressive ways of viewing experience is the dreamlike nature of experience. Right. In order to know why dream yoga is important as a practice along the path of awakening, I think it's also important to understand the Buddhist concept, which I agree with you actually goes all the way back to the Upanishads, Maya, and the illusory nature of existence and Leela, the play of existence. Maybe you could say something about the dreamlike nature of existence (laughs) as a way for us to go into dream yoga. Well, this also ties back into our conversation on right view. Discovering the dreamlike nature, the illusory nature of reality is obviously an enormous part of the so-called spiritual path. Obviously, there's a very powerful near enemy. There's a shadow element, which is, of course, nihilism or spiritual bypassing. First of all, I have to define what it means to say that the world is illusory doesn't mean that the world doesn't appear. Things do appear. Thoughts appear. Phenomenal appearances arise. Conventional world continues to arise. We really don't contest that. What is contested is the status of that appearance, because what we do is, and this goes to the very guts of the whole agenda, we unwittingly project, impute upon a reality that is, in fact, foundationally illusory. See, this is the kicker. When the awakened ones wake up, what do they wake up from? What do they wake up to? Well, they wake up from a reified reality. They wake up from the nightmare of reification. Reification means to make real, to impute, seeing things as solid, lasting, and independent, which is a way to unpack duality. Meditation masters, the awakened ones, the Buddhas, they wake up from that nightmare into a reality that is, in fact, dreamlike, fluid, transparent. This suggests why, from an egoic perspective, ego just doesn't want to go here because ego lives in the world of reification and to see a de-reified, a fully elusified reality, a dreamlike reality, there's fundamentally no room for ego in that worldview. Understanding the dreamlike nature of reality is, is an enormous part of the spiritual path altogether. It is directly targeted in practices like dream yoga. Virtually every spiritual practice is to wake up to the nature of this world. And this is where we can use also um, the sciences. So I'm writing a book right now exactly on this topic, um, quite a deep dive into the Buddhist teachings on emptiness, which of course, not only does dream yoga circumambulate emptiness, all of Buddhism circumambulates emptiness. Emptiness basically means, in this sense, empty of the imputation of reification, empty of the illusion, this is what really doesn't exist, of, of a reified reality. Penetrating through the facade of a reified reality, we can use things like physics, um, neuroscience, cognitive science, the perceptual sciences to point out that fundamentally, if you take a very close look at the nature of mind and reality, 
empty, you will in fact realize that it is full of bardos, it is full of gaps. And we append the label dream or dreamlike to that. Not only does dream yoga, but almost any spiritual practice beyond shamatha is um, kind of pointing towards. Isn't that your experience? It's also my experience that this is a double-edged sword, especially in the clinical sense. In the West, the definition of mental health is you have a strong sense of self and you are able to use that self to have a full life. So anything that looks other than in terms of consciousness could be perceived as pathological in some way. Second quality the Buddha said a person has to go beyond is your cultural conditioning. <laughs> in yeah. order to achieve enlightenment. This idea of going beyond reification of self as some discrete entity on the inside that has no real connection with anything on the outside. That in America with our narcissistic and consumeristic view of what happiness looks like. This idea that something is not completely real is very threatening. Fulfillment for us looks like acquiring things that are real. This is where you have to do several things. You have to separate between absolute and relative truth, and you also have to look at things from a more integral perspective. Because, you know, as Jack Engler put it, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. First of all, ego doesn't exist. The sense of self fundamentally does not exist. That, that is wrong view. But that wrong view, that limited view, that partial knowing does have a conventional place from a developmental or evolutionary psychological point of view. If you did not have a conventional sense of self, we would not be here discussing the nature of the conventional sense of self. So we need to have this conventional sense of self in order to survive as a biological entity. In order to continue to grow, we have to transcend but include this uh, limited way of looking at things, looking at the world from this egoic perspective. Is this going to give us ultimate satisfaction? Well, I would invite people who think that way to take a look and see if the following uh, maxim is in fact, in fact not true, that we suffer in direct proportion to how solidly we take the contents of mind and reality. I just invite you to take a hard empirical look and see if that's not the case. If you're thinking about something, you're ruminating, you're worrying about it, why are you suffering? Because you're thinking objects of thought or reality are in fact inherently real. So if you see the illusory nature, again, these appearances are still there. Thoughts are still there. Appearances still arise. You're not getting rid of them. You're just simply altering your relationship to them. In, in terms of right view, you develop this kind of x-ray vision, you know, where you, you quite literally, and again, it's not a metaphor, you start to see through things. You start to look through things. They're still there. Thoughts are still there, but they're de-reified. They don't have the same force that they previously had. They're not laden with your projections and imputations, and therefore they have no power to control you. So I think it's super important when we start talking about these sorts of things to realize the integral approach to this, that there is a place for this thing we call ego. And when we grow past the ego, again, we don't kill it because it, first of all, it doesn't exist. Trying to get rid of it just paradoxically reifies it. You simply try to see through it against the idea of right view. So what I love about the dream yoga practices is people have a very limited perspective about mind in their waking life. And I think they also bring a similar limited perspective about mind in their dream life. 
without any lucidity in the picture yet, just in and of themselves, dream world, dream ego, anything can happen, literally anything can happen. The laws of physics doesn't apply. If you could think it, it's there. Right. Especially for patients suffering with depression and anxiety who have an even more limited view of mind. Being able to have the ability to wake up in a dream, know that it's a dream, and yet in the knowing, be able to interact with the dream from a perspective of quote unquote, I know it's the wrong term, but I'm going to use it anyway, from an empowered sense of self. It's not actually a self. It's just an intelligence. We could call it a creative intelligence. And so the ability to function from an intelligence that's curious and interested in what's occurring and wanting to be so fully engaged that you can actually have an impact. This is a perfect, pure way of experiencing not only the dreamlike nature of dreams, but the dreamlike nature of reality and that when you fully engage in the dreamlike nature, you are fully engaged. You're actually more fully engaged than when you are asleep in your egoic view of reality. There's so much that the dream can teach us. The mind as it manifests in a dream is a really kind of a rarefied dimension where we can really start to explore the nature of mind and therefore reality. In the general charter of dream yoga, which is not just in the Tibetan Buddhist arena. There are other wisdom traditions that refer and practice these practices. The nighttime dream is used as what's referred to as sometimes the, the double delusion or the example dream, which means we can, by waking up and becoming lucid into our nighttime dreams, we can gain a very profound intimation of what it could be like to wake up to the primary dream, to the real delusion, which is this. As you were suggesting, there are so many extraordinary opportunities that await people who can attain some level of proficiency in, in lucid dreaming. But lucid dreaming, just for our listeners, is when you wake up to the fact that you're dreaming and you know it. You're dreaming and you're aware. From a conventional point of view, and somewhat in contradistinction to dream yoga, as you alluded to, this is usually used for purposes of self-fulfillment, um, often initially for for self-aggrandizement, for indulgence, fulfilling your wildest fantasies within the privacy of your own mind. Again, using this idea of transcend but include, dream yoga transcends but includes lucid dreaming. So dream yoga is more spiritual than psychological. It's not so much about self-fulfillment as it is self-transcendence. And so when uses the platform of lucidity uh, in the lucid dreaming schools, to actually gain access to these subtle dimensions of mind where they can be, then engage for purposes of spiritual development. And oh my gosh, there's so much to say here. I mean, all the extraordinary things that can be done and why one would do it. If you look at the nature of your dreams, we may not really reflect on it this way, but you know, what, what are your dreams made of? Well, they're fundamentally made of your mind. If I have the opportunity to become lucid in the dream state, I have the opportunity to work with my mind at these very subtle dimensions. And many wisdom traditions from not just Buddhists, but others, Shaiva Tantra, Kashmir Shaivism, the Kabbalah, post-Kabbalistic thinkers, all proclaim that the practices and meditations you do in the dream state are quite dramatically more efficacious, more transformative than what you can do in the waking state, because you're dealing with a more subtle and in this view of mind and reality, foundational level of mind. 
the analogy I use is like tectonic shifting. You know, what you do down there, so to speak, can have very profound, dramatic, life-changing effects up here. And we can gain a sense of this when people have just one profoundly transformative near-death experience. You know, you don't have to have a near-death experience over and over to be irrevocably changed by it. You're changed so profoundly because the experience is so deep. And in exactly the same way, really profound lucid dreams, what are called hyperlucid dreams. And here's yet another nocturnal practice, the practice of sleep yoga, which transcends but includes both lucid dreaming and dream yoga. You have a sleep yoga experience where you wake up in deep, dreamless, formless sleep. That's a game changer. I mean, you, you come up out of one of those and you never see the world the same way again. It really is quite similar to an NDE really use your lucidity at night to bring about lucidity during the day. And so lucid dreaming leads to lucid living and then parenthetically also leads to lucid dying. And so to tie this back into this idea of seeing the world as a dream, your dreams become more and more real. By reifying the dream state, we de-reify the waking state. What we deem the dream, what we call a dream, is simply a quality of experience that's set in contradistinction to what we call reality, which is a sense of stability and constancy in most of our lives dictated really by sensory constraint. It's sensory constraint that gives us the sense of stability in the waking state. So when an untrained mind is released in the dream state and mind becomes reality, well, we call that a dream because it's unstable, it's, it's fluctuating, it's moving, it's all the things we know as the dream. It's freed from sensory constraint. You know, that's why dreams are truth tellers. We realize just how stable or unstable our mind really is. But lo and behold, and this ties into the practice of meditation, as you stabilize your meditation, the mind becomes more clear, more stable. That mind is then released in the dream state. Then what happens is incredibly compelling to me. The dream state becomes increasingly real. The immediate implication is that this becomes more dreamlike. This becomes more illusory because that same stability, precision, and the awareness cuts through the facade of what we know as this kind of constant physical world. You see the equanimous nature of all these different states of consciousness. For, for the mind of the awakened one, and this is not a metaphor, there's no difference between waking, sleeping, dreaming, or dying. You realize that fundamentally any manifestation of mind in this sense can be designated as dream. And so this is just the briefest overview of just the extraordinary depth and transformative qualities and potentials of, of this thing called dream yoga. Many, many studies have shown that meditators have more lucid dreams in fact, B. Allen Wallace, I interviewed him recently, and he, he went so far as to say that dream yoga is a form of vipassana. So you enter this amazing night school, you know, you're adding a night shift where you can do all these amazing things. We sleep, what, a third of our lives. 25% of that is in the dream state. So a month, a year is lost usually to non-lucid sleep. And, you know, six to seven years of an average lifetime is lost to non-lucid sleep and dream. Maybe I'll just distill that a bit you elucidated the true nature of right view, which is those states of mind shift. There is an innate capacity to be wakeful in the midst of the shifting states of mind. For most meditators, they would be thinking, oh, she's saying shifting states of mind, so she's only talking about shifting states of mind when I'm awake. And yet, what all these traditions you've named, shifting states of mind actually means waking, dreaming, 
sleeping. All of these states of mind are nothing more than shifts that occur probably due to physiological processes and the fact that our species needs to sleep. In order to get really good sleep, we have to go into REM. And when we go into REM, then we allow the shifting state of mind to turn into dream. The other thing I wanted to say, back in 2010, when I was on a month-long retreat with Vinja Rinpoche, there was one night when he was teaching on dream yoga. Somebody raised their hand and she said, but Rinpoche, when I'm in a dream, if somebody comes up and stabs me, I don't bleed and I don't die. That's what would happen to me if I was in my waking life and somebody came up and stabbed me. And he looked at her and he said, well, if your waking life was as short as your dream is, you wouldn't die and it wouldn't hurt you if you got stabbed in your waking life. <laughs> yeah. And this was his way to break her view that there's some difference in mind state between waking and dream state. The fundamental status of mind in all these states is inherently equivalent. This actually comes from Ramana Maharshi from the Advaita Vedanta tradition. You know, he says this, it's so beautiful, I memorized it, and you say, he says, the sage dreams, but he knows it to be a dream in the same way he knows the waking state to be a dream. Established in the state of supreme reality, the sage detachedly witnesses the other three states, waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep, as pictures superimposed onto it. For the sage, all three states are equally unreal. Most people are unable to comprehend this because for them, the standard of reality is the waking state, whereas for the sage, the standard is reality itself. From this deeper, more foundational stance that we would talk about it in the Buddhist tradition as the clear light mind, the Dharmakaya, the Dharmadhatu, all these terms, from that perspective, whatever arises from that stance is seen to be equally real or unreal. And then because of that, then we can relate. And I think this is the important point because when we start talking about these sorts of things, you know, right view can get lead us a little bit too astray. If it becomes too absolute, it becomes a little bit too disembodied from, from real life experience. If you have this more foundational perspective upon which to see your world, then you're no longer buffeted around by the contents of your world. It becomes extraordinarily practical. That heavy state of mind, that darkened state of mind, no longer has the power to move you. I mean, this is real city. This is real power. The phenomenal appearances of, of the world no longer have the power to fundamentally affect you because, as they say in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, emptiness cannot harm emptiness. And so when you have this foundational view, this is not just metaphysical mumbo-jumbo that has no applicability to our everyday waking life. From this stance, this is a total game changer because, as Ramana Maharshi intimates, that when you have this type of awakened perspective, this is real lucidity. This is what lucidity is really all about. Mm -hmm. From that stance, appearances still arise, just like in a, in a dream. The phenomenal world still appears, just like in this so-called waking state, which, of course, is just a dream. But now, because of your new perspective, it doesn't have the power to adversely affect you you feel things more, but they hurt you less because, first of all, there's no place for these experiences to land. You therefore don't appropriate them. You therefore don't go grasping after them or pushing them away. This perspective to the nature of mind and reality helps you develop tremendous personal equanimity towards the arising of all kinds of experiences. You grow old, you get cancer, you get AIDS, dementia. You start to relate to these experiences from a profoundly different perspective. 
just to tie this into bardo yoga, from this deepest perspective, even death no longer has any meaning because death doesn't really apply when you see the world through this lens. So I want to just toss that back into the mix. Otherwise, this stuff can just feel like spiritual rhetoric that has no applicability. And, and my charter with these things is, yes, I, I love to talk about the deep philosophy and the science and the metaphysics behind it all. But fundamentally, in the spirit of hearing, contemplating, and meditating, it's all about getting these teachings into your bones and into your system so that it profoundly alters the way you relate to yourself and therefore to your world. It doesn't lead you into this kind of dismissive approach. Well, if it's all just a dream, who cares? What does it matter? When you wake up to the dreamlike nature of things, that means you realize your deep interconnectedness with all things, where you take this lucid realization and not use it as a way to catapult out of conventional reality, but actually catapult back into it with lucidity, with wakefulness, with awareness, so that you can act in a more awake way to help the conventional world. And that I think is really important in this day and age when spirituality, and I, I, I believe rightly so, is being criticized for being somewhat self-absorbed and escapist. This is a very powerful and very real near enemy of all these practices. If compassion is not a result of your wisdom, if engaged activism is not a, a byproduct of your spiritual path, then there's something limited in your spiritual path. This is the primary reason why when my patients are interested in learning quote-unquote lucid dreaming, I always point them to you and your trainings because many of the other people who write books about this or teach about this, the sense of egoic attachment to power in the practice of lucid dreaming yeah. is going so much in the wrong direction and I don't see how any one of the meditative practices can be taught without the wisdom along with it, because you get lost. It's very easy to get lost. I mean, without proper guidance and again, without proper view, pretty inevitable that people will get lost. One of the reasons that Carl Jung, very sophisticated dreamer, knew mm -hmm. all about lucid dreaming, he was very reticent to endorse lucid dreaming because he saw the shadow side of egoic self-aggrandizement, um, inflation, that kind of thing. What you're saying is, is, I think, a point very well taken. And again, it's also one of the things that differentiates lucid dreaming from dream yoga. Because lucid dreaming, you can indulge your mind. You, can, you actually can accrue negative karma. People often don't realize that whenever intention is involved, even at the level of a dream, a lucid dream is not karmically tax-free, which is both good news and bad news. You know, Wherever intention is involved, karma is created. So if you're indulging the fantasies of your wildest imagination in your lucid dreams, you're stamping your unconscious mind, even using the tenets of neuroplasticity. What you do with your mind changes your brain. There are definitely shadow elements to kind of standard over-the-counter lucid dreaming. But the good news is, in exactly the same way, you can also create good karma, good habits, through healthy intentionality. And this is what differentiates dream yoga from lucid dreaming. So you've mentioned the Bardo teachings a few times now, and you and I are both going to agree these teachings would take an entire other episode for sure. us to really go into. On the other hand, because you've mentioned them and because I think there's a certain amount of existential dread that people carry around about the natural transition that human beings have, which is called death. 
I thought maybe you would want to say a little bit about why you and so many other Buddhist teachers are teaching right now about the bardo and leaving the body intentionally at the time of death. In my cartography of, of um, these nocturnal practices, that's my term, there's, there's four of them. So we've briefly hit on three. So lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, and in my mapping, the fruition in, in a very real way of bardo yoga. Bardo yoga transcends but includes all three of these practices. Bardo is a Tibetan word that means gap, transitional process in between. As you were pointing out, it, it fundamentally is directed towards the big gap at the end of life if you believe in this sort of thing. But I think the great power of Bardo yoga is its immediate applicability into every state of consciousness. Because in conventional reality, if you open your eyes to it, conventional reality is just chalk full of bardos. I mean, there's a bardo between each and every thought. There's a bardo at the end of every day. There's a, a bardo at the end of every relationship. Anything that ends or takes birth abides by bardo tenets. And so therefore, bardos are absolutely everywhere. We just don't, we, meaning ego, just doesn't like to hear of this truth because, of course, even at this, at this fundamental level, in a certain real way, ego is anti-bardo. Ego is, is the archetype of non-bardo principles. And so that's why ego runs around basically caulking reality, you could say, stuffing in all the gaps with speed of mind, with active laziness, with all the things we do to avoid the highly disjointed, bardo-like, dream-like nature of reality. So when we talk about reality as being like a dream, that's the other way to talk about it. Reality is, like a, is just bardo-like. In the Tibetan tradition, the end of life, death is literally referred to as the dream at the end of time. People often ask, well, where do I go when I die? With these larger views of mind and reality, fundamentally what happens is you simply transition from one dream to the next. I mean, we're in a dream right now. We just don't see it. And so when we realize the dreamlike nature of this, then we realize when we die that we're simply transitioning, again, from one manifestation of mind to the next. So if you want to know how you're going to die, look at how you're living. If we are non-lucid to our lives now, we're unaware of the contents of our experience, we're sleepwalking through life, we're going to sleepwalk through our dreams, we're going to have non-lucid dreams, we're going to sleepwalk through death, we're going to have a non-lucid part of experience. If you're lucid during the day, lucid to the contents of your mind through meditation, you will become lucid to the contents of your mind as it's revealed in sleep and dream. And then the graduate approach is, my gosh, that same mind when it's released, not just from sensory constraint in sleep and dream, but from bodily constraint altogether, from these wisdom traditions point of view, then that exact same mind, now you can have a lucid bardo experience. And this is the fruition. This is what you want to be able to do because the biggest problems we have in the bardos is not realizing that we're in them in exactly the same way that we don't realize we're having a dream when we're having a dream we can work with mind as it manifests in the day, daily meditations, as in the dream, dream yoga, as in sleep, sleep yoga. And then if you believe in this stuff, as in death, bardo yoga. And that's the great gift of these traditions is to introduce us to these subtle dimensions, allow us to gain familiarity with them, which is the very definition of meditation in Tibetan, and then basically fundamentally be liberated from non-lucidity in all states. So that's why I get so excited about this stuff. And I get so excited also because what you've just described is the definition of genuine mental health. Absolutely, isn't it? Clinicians sit in their offices all day long grappling with how to help people. And ultimately, to me, this is what helps 
looks like, which is allowing people to understand the nature of their existence from direct experience, which is liberating. It's fundamentally really about establishing sane, lucid relationships to the contents of mind and reality. And that's where liberation really takes place. I am sure this conversation has enticed people to come and actually work with you and read your writings. How do people do this? Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. Obviously, websites are the way to go these days. My website at andrewholacek.com. And, you know, the really exciting thing these days is, is we launched about four months ago a really cool subset that we're calling Night Club. This is a really fun arena that is basically designed as a support for um, a lot of what we've been talking about today. There's a great reservoir of written material there. One of the highlights is kind of similar to what we're doing now is, you know, I've had the great good fortune of interviewing some pretty amazing thinkers on the site. That site also lists programs that I do. I'm constantly teaching now on Dream Yoga. I've got one book was published. I have three more coming out. I'm also starting week-long kind of deep dives. This is a new thing for me. Part of my charter is to take these great um, wisdom teachings, translate them culturally into the, into the vocabulary of the West using my understanding of psychology, philosophy, science, and the like, so that people realize, oh my gosh, this is what they're talking about. Now I get it decoding these wisdom teachings for everybody. You know, people hear about lucid dreaming, dream yoga, bardo yoga, it's like, what? But then they go, oh yeah, I get it. Oh yeah, every relationship that ends, bardo principle, lucidity in my dreams. Oh my gosh, I, I can maintain lucidity with a thought state. And so then by demystifying it, then you realize, whoa, look at the potential behind these different practices. Then you realize meditation is just not what you do when you're sitting with mindfulness. You know, your entire life becomes a spiritual practice in a very real way. You've entered lifetime retreat in the context of daily life because you've been given this extraordinary skill set from these brilliant wisdom masters that basically show us how to wake up to attain lucidity, awareness in all states. That's no small thing. I'm certainly glad you're doing it. Thank you so much. I'm having fun. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.